Welcome to The American Ingredient, a podcast that examines race in American society from an academic perspective. Focusing on the work from social scientists and legal scholars, The American Ingredient demonstrates that race is not the only ingredient in making America, but in order to make America, you need two heaping spoonfuls. Requiring individuals and groups to make amends for past wrongs is a critical part of human society. If individuals could just harm someone without being required to help in the healing process, societal relations would break down quickly. African Americans have argued that in order for American society to functionally operate, the U.S. government must formally make amends for its support for slavery, Jim Crow, and numerous other discriminatory practices. To this point, the call for African American reparations has not produced the desired outcome at the federal level. However, local movements have been able to gain leverage. They have been able to convince local officials to provide reparations for past misdeeds as a way to help heal old wounds, empower, and prevent these wrongs from occurring again. For example, the city of Chicago has provided $5.5 million in reparations to numerous individuals who were subjected to torture by Officer John Berg from the 1970s to the early 90s. Further, the city constructed a monument to the victims of Berg's torture and incorporated this case into the U.S. history curriculum for 8th and 10th grade students. Our guest on this episode is Professor Kathy Powers of the University of New Mexico. Professor Powers is currently researching how groups and nations have sought reparations from the misdeeds of their government as well as other nations. We start this episode with Professor Powers discussing how she became interested in this topic and some of the challenges of the African-American case. So at that time, I was teaching classes on international political economy, international relations, and I had a student who was biracial, African-American and Jewish, who walked into my IPE class and asked a very simple question. He said, I want to do a project on why my Jewish grandmother got reparations for the Holocaust, but my African-American grandmother did not for slavery. And so I said, you know, this is an internationally oriented class. Can you find other cases? Professor Powers, after this experience with a student, where did you go to next? Aborigines in New Zealand and Australia have had a similar battle. Indigenous people in Ecuador and Peru have the same battle of because they weren't considered human beings or citizens. It took years before they were able to get legal standing to be able to pursue reparations in legal venues, policy venues within a country. I think we need to be clear that the African-American case represents the most difficult cases on the planet, but not unique. And those are historical injustices, where if we're talking about slavery, one of the main critiques is why should there be reparations? How can you demonstrate what happened then connects to harm today? Okay, so one of the things I've come to understand is we have to consider the African-American reparations case in a global context to understand why it's so difficult. It sits inside of a global hegemon. So we understand a hegemon as a state or nation that can dominate other states or nations. And usually this is through economic or military power. So what is it about the United States that makes it so difficult for African-Americans to seek reparations from other from international bodies? Usually in other countries, human rights activists, part of their strategy is to get the attention of the U.S. If the U.S. knows about this, the U.S. will put pressure 
on our government, tried to hold them accountable in the war crimes tribunal and put pressure as the U.S. did with Japan and the comfort women in Southeast Asia who were forced into sexual slavery during World War II, the U.S. government passed domestic legislation in U.S. Congress to put pressure on Japan to pay. The U.S. was responsible for apprehending Pinochet in Chile, for example, or Charles Taylor in Liberia. One of the things I think African-Americans understand is that no one will come. When you are inside of a hegemon and human rights violations are happening, what country or group of countries will come and help or put pressure on the U.S.? I mean, even in the cases, we have 50 cities in the U.S. under investigation for police brutality. The United Nations put forward a report that outlined the human rights violations. But it's not like there's some sort of force that's going to come in and compel the U.S. government to change its behavior. So the strategies of individuals in the African-American reparations movement are very different than the global trend that's happening right now. The global trend is there are now international courts, international treaties, domestic courts, community organizations. There is an institutional and legal landscape that has emerged globally for individuals to bring reparations claims against their governments, and the rest of the world is using them. Minorities in the United States are not, because I've talked to some of the lawyers on these cases, and they say even if we won a judgment against the U.S. government for slavery and mass human rights violations, if the government chose not to comply, how do you make a hegemon or a very powerful country comply? Professor Powers, you've highlighted the difficulties with getting the federal government to respond to these calls for reparations. Where have you seen success in these calls for reparations? There hasn't been satisfaction in the U.S. Supreme Court, nor in Congress. And so where the success is beginning to happen is in city ordinances and also corporate reparations. So, for example... There's a group called the Restitution Study Group, and uh, Deidre Paulman is leading it. And she's a lawyer who realized that who is the legal person who benefited from slavery that's still in existence today? And that would be corporations like New York Life Insurance, for example, or Wachovia Bank. That, for instance, with New York Life Insurance, they offered forms of life insurance for slave owners to put enslaved people in more dangerous situations with a high probability of death, knowing that if they did die, they would be compensated for property lost. So what she has done is in her group is that they're going after corporations for um, reparations saying that you could not exist if you did not, for example, have that sort of insurance at that time. And New York Life Insurance has paid reparations. So we've had successes that most people don't even know about in very um, narrow places where they say, okay. We'll give reparations to this group of people who are descendants of these enslaved people in this state, and it'll be scholarships for college so that they can say that they did something. The other strategy has been cities like Chicago, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, and I know Cleveland and Columbus were considering it, is saying if you are a corporation and you want a contract with the city, to build any building, you are required first to do research into your background about whether or not you have any connections to slavery and reveal that truth before you can get this contract with the city. 
So it's the opposite of a truth commission that is commissioned or created at the level of the national government where eminent people are put on and commissioned with doing an investigative report of the atrocities during a particular period of time, interviewing the perpetrators and the victims, as in Chile, Argentina, South Africa, that this report then is supposed to represent the truth of what happened. There isn't the political will and circumstances for that in the U.S. because it would be very difficult to create a commission to deal with African-Americans and slavery in this time, especially under President Trump. So what they've been doing is the city ordinances as a different method of documenting the truth of at least the involvement of particular corporations. And it's powerful that the political will to have such a requirement in order to be awarded a contract by the city has happened in these cities that have larger populations of African-Americans. So you've talked about why the U.S. case is so distinct. What about other Western industrialized nations such as France or United Kingdom, which have um, pretty strong economies and pretty strong militaries and also have a, a history of colonization? How have they dealt with issues of reparations or have they been like the U.S.? People have shied away from trying to take them to task about reparations. It's very similar. And in fact, um, the reparations claims that are coming out of the Caribbean and out of African countries are primarily being launched towards the UK and France. So a really good example of this is Haiti. After Toussaint Overture led the slave revolt against Napoleon's army and won and ousted France from Haiti at the time, the U.S., the U.K., and France got together and said we cannot have this happen again in the Atlantic slave trade and imposed reparations on Haiti. Um, it was 80 percent of the national budget for 150 years. So you can't understand. The example of Haiti is an extreme example of impeding the progress of other nations. Haiti being a former French colony that was overthrown in a rebellion amongst the slaves, faced scrutiny from both the U.S. and France. The U.S. imposed an embargo against Haiti, strongly restricting its ability to trade and develop. Furthermore, France demanded that Haiti hand over 80 percent of its budget uh, for 150 years. And so this is the equivalent of paying $21 billion over 150-year period. And Haiti is now making demands that France pay this back as a form of reparations so they can rebuild and develop their infrastructure. So you can't understand Haiti's reparations claim to France if you don't understand the historical impact. Now, the Caribbean countries as a whole have been very influential in reparations efforts globally because they're going after the UK for colonialism in the Caribbean, and they're using an international organization to do it. It's called CARICOM, and it is a trade organization among Caribbean countries to facilitate international trade among them. And they also use it to deal with their security issues, military security issues also. They are engaged in some really institutional innovation by saying individually we're small, but if we mobilize our leverage through CARICOM 
and use it as an instrument, we can bring reparations claims against the UK collectively rather than individually. And the CARICOM points, it's like 10 points that have been outlined for the kinds of reparations that are necessary have had a global influence. And in fact, individuals who are participating in the African-American reparations movement have adopted these 10 principles, which include recognizing not only the economic impact of colonialism and slavery on Caribbean countries, but also economic impact on individuals, the psychological and health impact on individuals in the Caribbean as a function of poverty, as a function of lack of access to medical care. For Haiti, the repeated natural disasters that have happened in addition to being the poorest country in the Western hemisphere. So what makes African-Americans different from folks in the Caribbean and African countries is that we don't have control of the apparatus of the state. Belinda Wallace is the one that pointed this out to me. She said, Caribbean countries and African countries have control of the state and then can use international organizations and courts to bring claims against the UK. But because African-Americans don't control the state and can't determine or, or decide to bring a claim as the United States against the UK for colonialism or for slavery in the International Court of Justice or any other court, we lack one important mechanism or resource for reparation seeking, and that's as a state actor. I would say today- A state actor is a person who's acting on behalf of a governmental body, such as the police, military, or elected official. The success we've seen is um, in G8 negotiations. African and Caribbean countries have made an argument that there should be some debt forgiveness as a form of reparations for colonialism and slavery. And they were successful at doing that. And it was because they had the apparatus of the state to be involved and at the table in negotiations. Those were approved. Uh, Professor Powers, it seems like the international method for seeking reparations of state actors has been fairly successful. How long has this strategy been used? As far as using um, international organizations to seek reparations, this is a fairly new strategy that the Caribbean countries have recently launched. So it remains to be seen whether or not it's worked. I can say the degree to which it's had an impact thus far is those points, there are 10 points that lay out the ways in which individuals and states have been impacted by slavery and colonialism have been adopted by other states and by individuals. And so um, even in um, African-American academia, journals in education, history, um, sociology, and then also in, in education focused on children, decided two years ago to do special editions on African-American reparations and invoking the CARICOM points that I've described, asking scholars to weigh in and write about the African-American reparations pursuit and how we might incorporate these points that may help us to be more successful. So I would say many of these strategies are new and largely because of the evolution of international law. 
and the international legal system that evolved has been primarily focused on protecting the sovereignty, meaning authority of countries. And so there were few venues available for individuals to bring claims or even international organizations to bring claims and bring the target of them. The International Court of Justice was really it, and it only allows states to be the target and sender of claims. And if, for example, your assets, you're living in a foreign country, your assets are taken away by another country's government, you don't have the power or the standing, the legal capacity to bring a claim against that government in the International Court of Justice, you had to convince your own government that its sovereignty was violated in the process and to bring a claim for you. What's happening now is the recognition, especially with the Holocaust, the Nuremberg trials that orders are not cover, so there's individual accountability, but also that there are limits to state sovereignty. And so countries cannot simply commit genocide or atrocities towards their citizens and claim that they have a sovereign right to do so. With this norm emerging that there's limits to state sovereignty, but also um, the United Nations put forth a document called the Right to Remedy in 2005 that said that governments also have a responsibility that if their citizens have suffered human rights violations, even if they are not responsible, they are obligated to pay reparations. So there are these new norms happening that say that states have limits and that individuals have human rights that are separate and not interpreted in terms of state sovereignty. So what does this mean for studying reparations? There was very little room historically to talk about human rights in the study of international relations because that wasn't considered high politics. So high politics was anything security related. Low politics was economics, and it was largely about this. Human rights, especially when we're talking about governments committing state repression towards their citizens, was considered the purview of comparative politics. When scholars realized that state repression of their citizens was a global phenomenon that we could see across the planet and regions across the world. International relations scholars became interested in it. In a world, and it's called anarchic from an international relations perspective, it doesn't mean chaotic. It means that there's no world government to protect states nor tell states what to do. And if we live in this sort of world where states are the primary actors, how do we hold them accountable has now become a central question. Professor Powers, you've noted the difficulty of getting scholars of international relations to pay attention to questions such as these. Has this always been the case? And are there contemporary examples of international relations scholars paying attention to questions like these? There are a couple of seminal books that came out last year that are showing us that we weren't always this way. The study of international relations did include these sorts of questions in the 1930s because why was colonialism happening? What countries were imposing colonialism and slavery on what other types of countries? So European countries imposing it, colonialism on Latin American, African, and Asian countries, for example. So Errol Henderson at Penn State University has a book 
African realism and what he's talking about is the theories of international relations don't work the same way in the global south primarily Africa. These were theories that were created off of interstate relations between European countries and Europe and the United States. And so what he talks about is realism. In, in Africa, countries are not mostly concerned about attacks from other countries. Their security threats are potential coups and civil conflict within the country. So then he takes realism and how does it then be applied in that context? Bob Vitalis said, Uh, University of Pennsylvania has a seminal book out right now that then challenges race in the study of international relations. And he's done this archival work at Howard and found that Ralph Bunch and, and other scholars, when they graduated from the Ivy Leagues, they could not be hired at historically white institutions. They could not be published in historically white journals. So they were hired at Howard created the Howard School of International Relations, and along with Howard, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and I think Columbia, these were the major centers to study international relations. So Bob Vitalis argued that the move from studying race and colonialism, human security issues, was purposeful when Kenneth Waltz comes in and says, well, if we focus on the structure of the international system, the distribution of military capabilities, where the countries that have the majority of military capabilities and power, and make some predictions about when we see more or less conflict between a unipolar system when there's one major country as military power, bipolar where there's two, or multipolar, that we can understand war and security issues much better and it's much more simple and it's elegant. And so we lost this history of African-Americans having a seminal impact on the study of international relations, which is profound for me because I didn't know about this history and largely thought that I was alone. Just to show you how small this world is today in this very specific world of the social scientific study of international relations. Christian Davenport at the University of Michigan, Errol Henderson at Penn State University, Mark Sawyer, who recently passed at UCLA, Kanisha Bond at the University of Maryland, and Jakana Thomas at Michigan State University are examples. As far, and this is important the way I say this, as anyone knows, I'm not the first Black woman to get a PhD in international relations. That would be Murr's Tate. But I'm the first in quantitative international relations to be tenured in 2013. So we're talking about in this small field, nationally, we have less than 10 people. This is a pretty strong project and can have large ramifications for not only internal uh, politics in the U.S., but also international politics. What do you hope is the main uh, product of this book? The book that I'm working on is called Making Amends, The New Politics of Global Reparations. And so one of the things that I realized is there wasn't sort of an effort to lay out how do you pursue reparations? Most people have no idea, one, that they suffer, especially in the United States, a human rights violation. And what does that look like? And then second, what are reparations? And then what are the venues in which you could pursue them domestically and internationally? 
And then finally, some of the sort of political and legal issues that arise in pursuing reparations. So the first half of the book is sort of a primer that individuals on the research side, it lays out the institutional and legal landscape for reparation seeking to start thinking about, and this is the broad question that shapes all of my work, why do some victims pursue reparations, others don't? Why are some efforts awarded and others aren't? And then what are some of the consequences of reparations? And it has practical implications. Where do individuals have legal standing to bring claims against different kinds of perpetrators, whether it be the state and international organization, and other kinds of groups. And how would you get started? How does it work? What kinds of reparations might you seek? So in the American context, our sort of stereotype of reparations is money. And once you get outside of the West, it's very different. First of all, reparations serve several functions. And then I'll give you some examples. First is restitution, which means to restore to the previous context. So if your land was taken away, giving your land back is restitution. If your citizenship was taken away, restoring that, giving that back is restitution. But what happens if your family has been massacred? Restitution doesn't work. So then what we more typically think about is compensation. And that's often financial in terms of reparations. And that can look like a one-time lump settlement or more like a social security program where you're paid monthly. And then there's the cutting edge of reparations, which is called rehabilitation. So that if your hands and your feet were cut off as in Sierra Leone, so that you could not walk, you could not work, you could not vote, a lump sum payment or even a certain amount of money for the rest of your life might not be enough to deal with the medical problems that result. So prosthetics can be reparations and were used in Sierra Leone. Or if you have PTSD because you live in a context like Uganda where there's constant violence, access to psychological care. Or if you have been, suffered sexual violence of multiple types, consistently and have major medical issues over which, or you were to other forms of torture. Access to medical care for the rest of your life is a form of reparations. And so we see this in Peru, for example, where community health centers have been created and put in communities where a large number of the people have suffered similar human rights violations. So it could be that the community health center is built and then you have free access to it the rest of your life. Politics comes into play when, you know, in Peru, you have to have a certificate that says that you're a victim and that you can then use the community center. Or in Chicago, after police torture, reparations were awarded by the city council seven months ago and community health centers were created on the south side and the west side of Chicago, recognizing that when Commander Berg had torture centers on the south side and the west side from 1972 to 1991. That the hundred men, black men and others who were tortured in those centers that impacted the entire community. So the communities have access to that health care. So in terms of the real world implications is that Centers like the International Center for Transitional Justice um, in New York, Redress in the UK, 
reparations efforts here in the United States are beginning to think more about what was the nature of the human rights violation? What kinds of reparations exist? Can we ask victims what they need? And can we craft them to more directly deal with the harm? So this has huge implications for, for example, I've just described to you reparations as a legal claim in domestic and international courts and reparations as a public policy, as the vehicle for reparations. And that mechanism for reparations is spreading across the planet. Because when you have 100,000 people who have suffered a similar human rights violation and the government is responsible, it would be judicially inefficient to have them all bring legal claims. So what governments are beginning to do is to craft public legislation that funds the public policy, that creates um, community centers release access to medical care. The primary form of reparations in these public policies has three components. It's the traditional compensation is monetary. Educational benefits, assuming that your educational prospects or your children have been affected by the human rights violations you suffered. And then finally, health benefits and access to health care. So Chicago police torture reparations were modeled after Chile, Argentina, South Africa. So the victims of police torture now can have access to free education at the city colleges of Chicago and vocational schools. Community health centers have been put in place. And then also the textbooks in the Chicago public school system will be rewritten as a form of educational reparations that the story of this torture will be put in the history books to ensure that it's never forgotten or done again. As Professor Powers has demonstrated, the African-American case of reparations is an uphill battle. And we've seen that this is not just the case for African-Americans, but also for other nations that have sought redress from what other nations have caused them over time. The history of colonialism, along with the history of racial discrimination within nations, has caused individuals to call upon their nations to not only apologize, but to make formal amends for what they've done. And what Professor Powers has highlighted here is a really discussion of the social contract and as well as the relationship between the citizens and their nations. What happens when the nation violates its citizens and how should the nation respond in helping heal that wound? We have seen action take place in Chicago as an attempt to try to heal the wounds from Officer Berg's actions. However, we are still seeing calls all over the nation for the nation to make redress for what is allowed to happen in the past. And we will see if these new theories and these new strategies will have success in the long run. Thank you for listening to The American Ingredient. I'm Eric McDaniel, a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Texas. I would like to thank Michael Heidenreich and Jacob Weiss for their assistance, along with the Department of Government at the University of Texas and the University of Texas's LEITS Development Studio.